Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. All right, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As we progress through the epistle, we've noted that Paul is affectionately striving to restore the relationship with the Corinthians. And I think we'll see chapter 6 is another time where he's pleading with them to restore that. And he's also at the same time throughout the epistle defending his ministry as an apostle because there were those in Corinth who were evidently confusing the people and trying to undermine Paul's credibility. So here we're also going to see him defending himself so it all was kind of a package deal, defending himself, restoring his credibility, restoring his fellowship with the Corinthians, all was uh, kind of intertwined. And in chapter 5, we saw that Paul was talking about the ministry of reconciliation and how God has given us this ministry of reconciliation and made us ambassadors for Christ. And um, he explained the gospel message. God took him who knew no sin to be sent for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That was verse 21, the verse that precedes our chapter here. So with that message in mind, with the responsibility as ambassadors in mind, um, he goes on to talk more about uh, restoring his relationship with them. So I'm looking at chapter 6 then, and we'll just read a couple of verses here. The first couple of verses. We then, as co-workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. So his plea here is to not receive the grace of God in vain. Um, I don't think he saying that they have not received the grace of God, that they're not saved. Of course, we know that they are because he's talked previously about their salvation. He called them sanctified, justified in 1 Corinthians. So, but he's saying that that salvation that you receive, that grace of salvation that you receive, don't receive it in vain. And the idea of the word in vain has the idea of not letting something come to fruitfulness, um, not letting it reach its purpose or its goal. Related to the passage that we looked at in uh, Philippians, really, the grace that we receive in salvation has a goal. It's not just to get us to heaven, but it's to change our lives here and prepare us for eternity. So um, the salvation that God gives us is to be, well, we could say worked out here. but um, he sees that it should bring them forward in their growth and holiness towards God and in harmony with one, one another. And that comes from the grace of God, not from the law, uh, which might have been what the legalists were teaching, um, trying to get the readers back into legalism. Uh, but he reminds them that the grace of God that they have should reach its fruitful purpose. And then he Quotes in the Old Testament from Isaiah 49, verse 8, 
um, which is God addressing his servant and urging him to restore his people, the Jew Jewish people. And so likewise, I think in the age of grace, which is in what we're now, not under law, um, this is the time that God has given us to do the work of reconciliation by his grace. And I think when he's saying today is the day of salvation, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. When he talks about the day of salvation, <clears throat> this, you often hear people preaching this or evangelists preaching this, like today is the day of salvation. You have to make a decision today. And although I support that, that, uh, that plea, it's not really an accurate way of using this passage. What he's saying, he's talking about we're in the age of grace now. And uh, this is the time that we have. We have the fullest revelation of his grace, fuller than the law had brought. So today is the day of, of grace and salvation. And he just told them to be ambassadors in chapter 5. This is the opportunity that we have both to share it and to live it um, under, under the day of Christ in this new age of grace, we, we'll call it. So God's given us a work of reconciliation to do or to do it by his grace and share that grace with other people. I think there's a little bit of urgency here in the plea, like don't delay. God won't be patient forever. Uh, this is urgent. Today's the day of salvation. And the next age to come, we know, is the tribulation period, right? In the timeline. And then after that, the kingdom. We can't do it then. So today's the day of salvation. This is the period or the age of salvation. Then he uh, turns to kind of defending himself in the ministry by um, extolling his blamelessness and verses 3 through 10. I'll just read those verses. He says, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, and distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of pairings there. So since he had adversaries in Corinth, Paul was determined to give them no excuse to accuse him or find offense in his ministry. He wanted to be blameless so that the Corinthians knew he was credible and authentic as an apostle. Um, and he didn't want to bring any blame through the methods that he used or his character, and that's why he lists this large list of things. So to establish that credibility, uh, he shows how he received the grace of God, and it wasn't in vain, how it worked itself out in his ministry. And these external trials that he mentions here are testimonies of God's grace as he uh, made it through them, endured them. Um, it reminds me of John Newton's hymn, 
grace has brought us safe this far, and grace will see me home. It's by God's grace that he endured these trials, and it also improves the purity of his intentions because he endured the trials. He didn't bail out. He didn't complain. <clears throat> he didn't resist them. Um, he continued through them. And he lists quite a lot of things. Now, they're listed in verses 4 and 5. There's three groups of three. And uh, it's been noted by some that the first group of three seems to be trials of a general nature. That would be tribulations, um, needs, and distresses. So tribulations could refer to just trouble in general. Uh, and of course, he had many uh, troubles, um, oppressive experiences, bad experiences with people and circumstances. And then he mentions needs. And um, needs probably speaks of hardships when he had to do without food, food clothing, um, whatever, transportation. Just some very, very difficult circumstances. And then distresses is his third. Um, distresses kind of probably refers to difficult circumstances that, uh, that kind of trapped him uh, and caused a lot of stress for him. Uh, the word implies a bad situation that can trap us. The second group of three things in, um, goes on. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults. Um, now, stripes obviously refers to the beatings that he took, and <clears throat> he talks about those later in chapter 11 as well. Um, flogging was a, and beating was a pretty serious thing, a very humiliating thing, but a very painful thing. People could die from it. And uh, you know, I think Paul said that he was beaten twice earlier in the, or was it stoned twice? I forget, but earlier in the book. He uh, mentioned imprisonments. Of course, we know that he was thrown into prison a number of times. When we read just the account of Acts, who knows but that he was in prison maybe more than that. Um, <clears throat> he mentions uh, his confinement in chapter 11. Again, when we, he kind of goes through a list of things uh, there as well. He wrote the prison epistles, of course, from prison. Um, he was imprisoned by the Jews, imprisoned by, in Rome. So we, we know these things. And then he talks about tumults. Tumults refers probably to riots, up, you know, uh, upheavals. Uh, he was in the riot in you know, Philippi, and um, it, it seems like everywhere he went there was a riot. <laughs> he caused trouble. Um, so he, he, he partook in a lot of riots. Um, riots, to me, would be a frightening thing. Uh, to endure because people are out of control. People are out of control, they can do anything. And the safety of a crowd, they can get away with a lot of things and harm people and not be seen. And when things are out of control, of course, that is, itself is a very frightening situation when a mob seizes you or something. But Paul went through that, and yet he endured. So the third group of three things he mentions um, in um, in labors and in sleeplessness and fasting, uh, labors probably refers to uh, hardships uh, that were imposed uh, on him for working for preaching the gospel. 
um, or it could refer to his labors with his own hands. He worked hard so that he wouldn't have to ask for any money or be accused of being there for money like he did in Corinth. He made tents. <clears throat> Sleeplessness. Um, he talks about, I don't think he suffered, suffered from insomnia. I think the implication is that he, he worked so hard that he just didn't have, didn't have time to sleep. Um, at least Paul didn't have to deal with jet lag. Sometimes when I go on these trips and, and land in another country and have to teach the next day or something, I'm so jet lagged, I feel like I'm teaching in my sleep. <laughs> but... Uh, I don't think jet lag was his problem. I think it was just hard work or circumstances or having to run in the middle of the night, flee for his safety, whatever. And then fastings. Fastings, of course, we know is denying yourself usually food or something uh, for the sake of prayer, um, getting closer to the Lord. Um, there were some fastings that were part of the Old Testament law that uh, I think Paul may have observed, not not from the perspective of gaining any merit before God, but just as a cultural thing, fasting. So there you have three groups of three things um, which show really terrible circumstances that he went through, which testify to his love for them and his uh, credibility as an apostle. You don't suffer these kind of things if you're a phony. Um, the phony preachers we see today, to them suffering is when their jet plane breaks down and they they, they, uh, or they, they can't get uh, get runway space for their private jet or something. <laughs> I don't know. I just said that because one of the one of them's trying to raise a few million dollars for a private jet lately. Read it in the news. <clears throat> well, Paul didn't have that, so he moves then from his external circumstances in verse six. He moves it to more uh, in internal qualities that also testify to his authenticity as an apostle. And he, he mentions purity, uh, which is uh, moral uprightness. He mentions by knowledge, which probably has the idea of uh, insight into God's will and sensitivity to God's will. By long-suffering, uh, which refers to patience and dealing with people, forbearing is sometimes used as the, to understand long-suffering means. He was patient with people, waiting long, being patient. And by kindness, kindness is active goodness, generous and sympathetic, sympathetic good actions. Uh, you can choose to be unkind or you can choose to be kind. By the Holy Spirit, he says, um, this could, be refer to the, could refer to the fact that he was walking by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. Um, some... Some have suggested that the meaning here is more like uh, in the power of the Spirit or um, in a spirit of holiness, in a spirit of holiness, not talking about the Holy Spirit, but His Spirit, which was holy. It's a little hard to know exactly what he meant there, but he was a spiritual person, so uh, whether being led by the Spirit or doing it in the spirit of holiness. And then he says, sincere love. I think he's proved that over and over again with his words and actions towards the Corinthians, uh, that his love was sincere. 
He was very patient with them, genuine and honest with them. So the word sincere means genuine and honest. So it wasn't a phony love. It was a very real love. Um, he names some of the weapons that he has in ministry. And verse 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. So this is how he has armed himself, not with, he mentions earlier, not with deception and falsehoods or trickery, but by the word of truth. That's all he needed was just to be truthful and honest according to God's word and by the power of God. God's power is present when we use his word correctly. And you don't have to worry about persuading people, convincing people if we're using the word of God and letting God use it according to his power. And by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. The armor of righteousness, I think, refers to uh, probably righteous conduct or righteous life. Not talking about his justification here. Um, in those days when a soldier uh, fought, he fought with usually, if he usually, let's assume he's right-handed, his sword would be in his right hand, his shield would be more defensive on the left hand. Um, and perhaps that's why he refers to the right hand and the left, a fully, fully equipped, um, ready, battle-ready soldier and using the armor of righteousness as um, a defensive weapon. <clears throat> and he contrasts in verses 8 through 10 <clears throat> the varied responses he got to his ministry, and he uses a number of paradoxes, seemingly contradictory, um, but still his position is victorious. So look at these paradoxes in verses uh, 8 through 10 by honor and dishonor. Some places he went, he was greatly honored. Some places he went, they stoned him. Dishonor. In both situations, he endured faithfully. Um, by evil report and good report, <clears throat> there were those who spoke slanderously against him, said that he's teaching against Moses, things like that. And then there were those who spoke well of him. And... Uh, as deceivers and yet true. Many people accused him of deceiving uh, people and practice teaching a deceiving message. And yet the truth of it always came out or he was at least faithful to the truth. As unknown and yet well-known, I'm sure there were many people who didn't really know who Paul was or where he came from and what he represented. And yet there were those who also know him very well. He says, as dying and behold, we live. He talked about that earlier in 1 Corinthians, about how we're dying on the outside, but life is being renewed on the inside. Perhaps this is the same type of reference. He's dying constantly on the outside, and yet he's more alive than ever. As chastened and yet not killed. Chastened has the idea of being disciplined or um, <clears throat> in some way, and yet... Uh, he didn't die from whatever chastening he experienced from others. Maybe it could be from God even, but seems to be more like from others. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Uh, so Paul had much occasion to be sorrowful about the conditions of the churches, about his enemies, about his uh, physical problems perhaps. 
Um, and yet, he was always rejoicing. He always had something to rejoice about. After all, he wrote um, from a prison in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Here's something he was rejoicing about, even though most people would have viewed his circumstances as sorrowful. And he says, as, as poor, yet making many rich. Evidently, he was poor in his physical possessions. He had to work with his hands in Corinth to make a living. And yet, he says he makes many rich. And I think that probably refers more to the spiritual richness that he brought to people from his teaching. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. <clears throat> Interesting statement. Owning nothing. And yet, he owns everything. Um, it reminds us of the statement in James chapter 2 that it's poor who are rich in faith. And so here Paul is saying, look, I really don't own anything, but I possess all things. I think his eyes to the future where his rewards and his possessions are stored up for him in heaven. So you have this series of paradoxes or what looks like contradictions, but they were true of his ministry. There's a good... Uh, bad side to his ministry and that people thought he was bad and treated him badly and then there was the good side of his ministry where people loved him and treated him well uh, I think there's some things here that we can learn um, from this passage before we go on um, verses 1 and 2 show that God gives grace for a purpose and that purpose is to to grow and to go we could say he talks about God's grace and um, not receiving it in vain. So the grace that we receive, we should use it to grow and then we should share it with others as ambassadors. We connect this to the passage before it. And then um, our conduct gives credibility to our message. And that's what he's arguing here, that in the midst of all these things that happened to him, he tried to stay faithful and it, he uses them as proofs of his apostleship or his credibility as an apostle. And so our conduct also gives credibility to our message. It's hard to listen to <clears throat> a gospel presentation by someone that we know is not living the truth and not living the right kind of life. First of all, it should be hard for them to even witness, but it's harder for us to really take seriously what they're saying if they're not uh, living for the Lord. So their message doesn't jive with their lifestyle. But uh, we should be careful about our conduct so that <clears throat> when we do have occasion to share the gospel, we, we have the credibility of our character behind it. I think another thing the passage shows us is that you can't please everybody in ministry. Paul's given the negative side of it, showing that there's a lot of people who didn't like his ministry. They didn't know about him. They didn't like him. They didn't care for him. And, and yet... He is victorious around them because he understands the other side of ministry that he's doing what God wants him to do. So you can't please everybody with our ministry and our message. Uh, there will always be people who oppose us as ambassadors for Christ and um, deny our message or try to slander our character and malign us, um, spread rumors about us. Uh, there will always be those who aren't receptive to the things of God who will oppose us. I think that's what it shows here. It's just a part of life. It's part of being a Christian. 
it was part of Paul's experience, and we too should probably expect that kind of treatment from time to time if we're going to take a strong stand for Christ. Those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, uh, Paul told Timothy. And then uh, Paul comes out of this, though, sounding awfully victorious, doesn't he, when he says he's, he's always rejoicing, he possess, possesses all things. It shows that we're more than conquerors no matter how people respond to us. So even though we expect some negative responses, criticisms, we're still more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. And uh, we should have the same attitude as Paul. We should always find things to rejoice about. We should always know that our, nobody can take our heavenly possessions from us. And that should encourage us to continue on in the face of any kind of opposition or any kind of uh, negativity. <clears throat> well, um, so Paul is kind of defending his character then in this, in this section. And he's now going to appeal for uh, their relationship and try to uh, show them how much he loves them and ask for that love in return, actually. And so he starts out in verse 11 by saying, Oh, Corinthians. And that's an emphatic way of addressing them. Only two other places in the New Testament does Paul direct his re address his readers directly like that. Uh, Galatians and uh, Philippians 4, I think. Um, and so here he's addressing them directly, just showing the emphasis, the personal emphasis here. O Corinthians, we have spoke, spoken openly to you, and our heart is wide open. Um, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as a children, you also be open. Paul is saying, look, I'm getting real vulnerable here. I'm going out on a limb. I'm telling you how I really love you and feel about you. And he's really opening up to them, we would say. And he wants them to reciprocate. He wants them also to open up their hearts towards him. And he says, that's what, what's keeping you. Uh, you're restricted by your own affections. Uh, some weren't open-hearted, perhaps, to Paul because they knew he disapproved of some of the things that they were doing. Um, evidently, they were following some of these false teachers and following into idol worship because that's an issue we see in 1 Corinthians. Um, Whatever the issue was, they knew that they weren't doing what Paul wanted them to do, so they're, they're, they were clamming up, so to speak, and not really showing their hearts as he was. Um, and then he says, uh, in, in parenthesis in the New King James, uh, now in turn for the same parenthesis, I speak as to children, uh, in parenthesis, you be open. What does he mean when, I, when he says, I speak as to children? I think he's simply saying, I'm just being honest as a child would be honest with you. I'm appealing to your sense of fair play uh, that children usually have. Um, <clears throat> and he, he just wants the same kind of response from them. Just a good, open, honest, common sense uh, response of affection and, and, uh, and vulnerability. Just like um, he has been open with them, he wants them to be open with him. You know, children don't have a lot of um, uh, boundaries, and they'll go up to somebody and, and say, you know, you're ugly, you're old. I mean, you know, they're just honest. They, they tell it like it is. 
That's the kind of honesty I think Paul is looking for in, in the readers as he reaches out to them. Look, I'm reaching out to you. You please be just, just be honest with me uh, like a child would be honest. Now, here's the problem that he addresses um, in verses 14 uh, to the end of the chapter. I think one of the hindrances is that they had made alliances and commitments to these false teachers and followed them into um, whatever practices, probably idolatry, because that's a big, big issue in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. So they probably had followed them into some kind of idolatry. And that's why he, he says what he says in verses 14 through following, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So these false teachers were obviously unbelievers. And being yoked together implies that there's a commitment there, a, a, an association, some kind of formal association. Um, it uh, we, we would remind people of Deuteronomy 22 in the Old Testament where you weren't to yoke together an ox and a donkey. Of course, an ox would do a lot more work and heavy lifting than a donkey, so it would be an unequal yoke. And so Deuteronomy actually has a law against that. And uh, that's perhaps what come, might come to mind to those who knew the Old Testament. Um, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now you notice he doesn't say don't associate with unbelievers because earlier he told us to be ambassadors of reconciliation to the world. Why can we do that unless we engage with unbelievers? And in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9 when he talks about uh, don't be immoral, he says, uh, but that doesn't mean you know, don't associate with people who are immoral. You can associate with people, just don't commit to them and, and be bound to them so that your reputation is affected by, by their reputation. And so in the same way, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Um, now, today we usually hear this applied to marriage because marriage certainly is being yoked together, isn't it? And... Uh, we, we tell a believer or unbeliever, you know, main, well, mainly we tell a believer, don't be yoked together with an unbeliever because you have made, you're committing your life and everything, your children and everything to somebody who doesn't have the same values or beliefs as you do. Sometimes we use this uh, for people in business. A Christian businessman or woman say, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever believing business partner assuming that sometimes unbelievers don't have the same moral scruples and principles that a Christian would as they operate a business about how to treat people, how, how to pay bills, how to take on debt and things like that. And so you could be getting yourself in a lot of trouble with an unbelieving business partner. Um, so that's how we often use it today. And I think those are legitimate uses. I think it's talking about any kind of relationship where there's a, some commitment or association involved. And he goes on to ask a series of rhetorical questions. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Uh, fellowship, of course, speaking of something in common. So what is in common with righteous behavior and lawless behavior? Uh, the righteous one is one who is upright and tries to keep um, the moral imperatives, do what is right. And law, a lawless one is one who just operates without any moral principles to guide him. And so how can those two people coexist or not coexist so much as associate 
in a serious relationship with one another. And then he says, what, and what communion has light with darkness? Uh, the word communion, again, is, uh, is the word of uh, close fellowship. And light and darkness, of course, are two opposites. There's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. Um, they don't have anything in common, so there's nothing in common there with light and darkness, and implying that the light of the truth and the light of Christianity has nothing to gain from being with the darkness of error, false teaching, and whatever practices come from that. And then in verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? Um, Christ and Belial, of course, have nothing. Belial, I think, here is used as another name for the devil. Uh, it comes from the Old Testament. And in, in the Old Testament, it was a word that was used to mean a worthless person. And in the New Testament, it came to mean a lawless person. So, of course, Christ has nothing to do with, with Satan or the worthlessness of his character. And then he asks, what part has a believer with an unbeliever? So someone who believes in Christ for salvation and eternal life, what fellowship is there in common with an unbeliever who doesn't care about their eternal destiny and the free gift of God offered through Jesus Christ? Obviously, there's a big distinction there. Um, I think Karen knows this, so it's not anything new to her but when I was uh, when I became a Christian I was uh, seeing a young lady and I suddenly became interested in spiritual things and she wasn't and I could just see that we were I was going down a different path and I was suddenly all interested in spiritual things and she could care less and we just broke up it wasn't even a hardly a formal breakup it was just like an acknowledgement that we're going different directions and uh, and then I met Karen so he was going in the right direction. Amen. So, what part is a believer with an unbeliever? What, what do we really share? You know, there's a lot of things that you can have in, in common with an unbeliever. You might like the same TV programs, movies. Or you might both like your jobs or earning money together. But when it comes down to the very heart of things, spiritual values and what we live for, the believer has a total, totally different orientation. And uh, if you're going to associate closely with somebody in marriage or business um, or in any kind of formal organization, uh, keep in mind that an unbeliever is not grounded in the same truth that a believer is, nor do they have that commitment to it. And then he goes on with the last question, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Uh, this implies that their problem was with idolatry. So they were going into the temples, following their false teachers in there. But what agreement is there with the temple of God? And then he defines what that is. And idols. God dwells in a temple. Idols dwell in a temple. You have to be one place or the other. There's no place in between. There's no agreement between them. Any idol is opposed to the true God. But look what he does is he explains what the, idol, the temple is here. He says, for you are the temple of the living God. 
as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A quote from Isaiah, um, I think that's a quote from Isaiah, uh, Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, probably. And there's some other passages it could quote from, like in Jeremiah and Exodus, but we won't give you all the references. It's a quote from the Old Testament, Exodus 29, some people say Leviticus 26, 12, excuse me. Um, but the point is, is uh, that there's no agreement between idols and God, and we are the temples of God. Uh, our bodies are the temple of God. So what association should we have with idols? Obviously nothing. God wants to walk with us and dwell with us and uh, make us his special people. And he is living in us. So to take the, us, our bodies, as a temple of God and put it, under a roof of idolatry is uh, is, is totally um, blasphemous um, in one sense, and the, the, and the idolatry in those days always involved some kind of sexual immorality. So there's that aspect to it as well. And the temple of God, our bodies would be compromised not only spiritually but physically in the idol temples where they practice a lot of uh, immoral sex. So um, the promises of God are, are in verses 17 and into chapter 7, verse 1. He quotes from Isaiah 52, 11 uh, next. He says, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and don't touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. So the call here is to be separate uh, from evil. Isaiah is quoted, and in the context of Isaiah 52, he's telling Israel to be separate from idolatrous Babylon. Babylon, of course, is symbolic of evil and idolatry. And he's asking there, that, or commanding there, that Israel be separated from Babylon. So he wanted them to be separate from Babylon, not because they had different doctrines so much, but because they had a different morality. And Babylon was given to the worship of idols, of course. And um, he wanted his people to be separate from them and don't touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. So just the, the, this analogy of touching something, uh, having, having to do anything with evil uh, is an unhealthy thing. I remember hearing a wonderful little illustration or quip from uh, Chuck Swindoll once when he was preaching, when he was talking about being separate from evil and our associations, and he talked about somebody wearing a white glove and, uh, and playing in the mud. Well, the glove gets muddy. The mud doesn't get glovey. The mud... The glove gets muddy, the mud doesn't get glo glovey. So if you have a believer trying to walk in righteousness, associating with unbelievers, what's the most likely thing to happen? It's not the unbelievers get more righteous, but probably that the righteous one gets more polluted. Um, I just finished reading the biography of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and was a slave trader and all of that. And uh, his conversion was 
came later in life, but actually he had a, a number of times where he would be walking with the Lord, he would relate, but then he would fall into some bad companions and he would, they would just pull him right back into his old life of blasphemy and immorality. And then he'd meet somebody and come out of it. He went through several cycles of this, but usually it was somebody, a group of companions that he fell into that pulled him down. And then finally he got it all straightened out and got with the right people. He started hanging out with John Wesley and George Whitfield and some other preachers that I didn't recognize, but they had a great influence on him. And he really didn't get things straightened out until he started hanging out with them. And, and I literally mean hanging out. He would go and visit them all the time and talk with them. So your companions make a big difference in uh, how they influence your life. Um, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 18 <clears throat> could be a quote from 2 Samuel 7, 14, uh, where God is talking to David. Some people think Isaiah 43, 6. And he's saying that as a father, he demands loyalty and holiness from his children. Just like any good father would, we have high expectations for our children. We want them to be our sons and daughters and reflect us our character and our reputation um, and that's what God wants for us is for us to be um, represent who he is to people so he, to do that we have to come out from those who are practicing immorality and avoid immorality and then finally 7-1 is really kind of a transitional verse it kind of concludes our discussion in chapter 6 but also leads into the next one um, so I've included it in the discussion today. He says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So having all these wonderful promises that God wants to bless us as, his, as our father and dwell with us, having these wonderful promises, um, the exhortation is to cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of flesh. Um, there are a number of passages in the New Testament that talk about putting off the old and putting on the new uh, aspects of God's life and righteousness. I think what he has in mind again is the idolatrous temple practices when he, when he says all filthiness of flesh and spirit because idolatry polluted both flesh with their sexual immorality, the temple prostitutes and so forth. And the spirit, because they're putting themselves in fellowship with idols instead of with God. But when he talks about flesh and spirit, he's obviously talking about the whole person. Not only our outside practices, but our inner desires. And so holiness, then, that he talks about at the end of the verse, is uh, perfected in the fear of God with a deep reverence of who God is and our accountability to him we can live a holy life. I think, again, as so many times, Paul has the judgment seat of Christ in view here um, when he uses this term, fear of God. It's a term that implies that there's an accountability that God will have <clears throat> and hold us to, and we should always have that in mind um, in the decisions we make and the practices, we, things we do in this life. Um, that God wants us to be holy and separate. And uh, if we keep in mind the fact that uh, uh, we will face him someday, it should plant enough 
fear in our hearts that we will have to give an account for what we do. And I don't think he's talking about the judgment seat of something that we tremble and fear before, but I, I think it's more in the sense of a deep reverence for God that controls our lives. So I would just summarize with a, a few applications um, from the passage. Sin and idolatry keeps us from responding to people openly and honestly. So we saw at the beginning of the chapter, he wanted, or in verse 13 anyway, or he wanted them <clears throat> to open up to him as he has opened up to them, but yet they, were, they had these sins that they wanted to hold on to. And so they weren't opening up to him. And I think it shows us that when, when we harbor sins and are not living according to God's will, we can also not respond to people openly and honestly. Um, if we lie about one aspect of our lives, we're probably going to lie about other aspects of our lives, but it's, it's completely different when we just determine to be open and honest. Uh, I love what Judge Judy always says in her TV shows. She says, if you, have a, if you tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. And uh, it, when we're open and honest, about the way we live, we have no sins to hide, then we can be open and honest with other people. And then I think the, another thing we should draw from this passage is that we should cut off relationships and practices that are impure in this life. Um, if there's a habit, if there's a, um, a practice that we're involved in, we should cut it off. If there's a person that is not good to be around, but leads us into issues and, you know, muddies the glove, so to speak. We shouldn't be hanging around that person. So is there something in our lives or some person in our lives that we need to dissociate from? And then uh, finally, where he talks about holiness, holiness takes time and the fear of the Lord. And we should always live in light of giving an account for God. When he talks about perfecting holiness, the idea is maturing or coming, bringing it to completion. So it's not an overnight process that we become holy, and holy is the end goal. The end goal is perfect holiness in Jesus Christ. But holiness for us is always going to be relative to where we are in life. As a new Christian, holiness might mean one thing. As a 20-year-old Christian, it might mean another thing. As a a 60-year-old Christian might mean another thing. But we always per should be on that road of perfecting it or completing it with in mind that we give an account to the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. So holiness, then, is uh, it takes time and it takes a deep reverence for God to help us make the right decisions and do the right things. To summarize, uh, Paul is talk, has told them that they are to be ambassadors for Christ, and he wants to work together with them to that end so that they're not taking the grace of God in vain, but letting it work itself out to its final goal or purpose, which is to bring holiness into their lives and share it with other, share the gospel with other people. And Paul defends himself by the things that he's gone through and how he's responded and how he's been victorious through it all. And then he ends with 
an exhortation for them to be holy and separate from the things that are sinful in their lives. So uh, a good word for us as we struggle through this uh, dark and perverse generation to be careful how we associate with people and things and to let, let God in Christ live his life out through us. He wants to dwell with us as a father and uh, we are the temple of God. Keep that in mind at all times and try to keep ourselves pure for him. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.